0: All right. Thanks, band. Good morning, everybody. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're visiting, welcome, like Spencer said earlier. Um, Glad to have you here worshiping with us today and to learn about Jesus with us. Uh, We are um, in the book of Matthew right now, the gospel of Matthew. We're going to dive into chapter 13 today, in the middle of chapter 13. So I can open your Bibles there if you want or follow along on screen. Uh, A couple of short things, though, before I get into it, because a lot of you guys are visiting today are brand new or just haven't been here for a month. I talked to someone earlier, I have been here for about four weeks, and so if that's the case, uh, to catch you guys up to speed a little bit on where we've been, um, we are in the early parts of one of the gospel accounts of the Bible, and so if that's a newer concept to you too, uh, the gospel accounts, gospel means good news. We talk about the gospel accounts of so the New Testament as a particular genre of scripture that talks about the theological history of Christ's birth and his ministry, his teachings, his, uh, when he rose the dead, and uh, also... Um, taught a lot in parables like we're going to see today, and really ultimately, though, went to the cross. That's the culmination of everything in the book, but we're still pre-cross here, and one of the things that Jesus does before he dies on the cross for our sins is he teaches about it in parables, sometimes not in parables, sometimes in a much clearer manner, uh, but sometimes, a lot of times, in parables, and Matthew 13 is some of those key elements, those key portions of Matthew that he does this in, and he also speaks in parables later in the book. We'll get to there later. Uh, But this is this main portion of Matthew's accounts of how Jesus teaches in parables uh, in his pre-cross ministry. So parables are short word picture type teachings about the nature of the kingdom of God. So if you don't know anything about parables at all, just understand that. Jesus is teaching about the nature of God's kingdom. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, but it's the same thing as kingdom of God. And so when you see that phrase, just plug in God there, it's the same thing. The kingdom of God is this idea of God coming to the world to rescue his people. This Old Testament concept, it was the hope of the Jews and really the whole world with them. That God would arrive to destroy the enemies of his people and undo this problem in the world that was sin. Manifested at times by other physical enemies like the Philistines and Goliath and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, Israel had other enemies, but the ultimate enemy was sin and death. Go way back to the beginning of the Bible, that's the problem that God has in his crosshairs. That's the problem God has set out to address and to fix, to amend solve. And he does that through his son. So when Christ talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, that's essentially what he's talking about. God's saving agenda in the world and circumstances surrounding that. So again, he'll talk very clearly about it in some cases. In other cases, in parables, he talks about it too, but it's in more of a veiled, foggy, word picture type manner. So on this side of the cross, we can look back at it and we can have a lot of clarity. So we're going to look at the kingdom of God today with the cross in mind, the empty tomb in mind, people's responses to all of that in mind, and we get some clarity on it. But picture yourself, too, as a Jew or some person in the crowds hearing Jesus teach in this manner, it would have been pretty veiled, too. So we've got to have both those things in mind. We're not going to look at a lot of the rationale behind that today. That was a part of two weeks ago's agenda. We talked about why Jesus speaks in parables at all. The disciples ask him that. Why are you hiding truth from people? Why aren't you more clear? You're clear elsewhere. We've heard you be pretty clear about who you are and what you're doing and all of that. Why are you hiding some of your miracles? Why are you hiding some of your teachings from people? And he answers that. I'm not going to go back into all that today, but part of today's passage in Matthew 13 does revisit some of that. So I'm going to talk about one of the three things we talked about two weeks ago to recap some of you on that and to, uh, for others of you that are brand new today to give you a little bit of a hint into that. But I encourage you to go back on our website. We have mp3s of all of our sermons. If you're at all curious, it's one of the most important questions we can ask, actually, about the parables. Why are you doing this? And, and the big uh, ultimate answer is because of the cross and to ensure that you would, in fact, go there and be, and be rejected. But I explain much more about that uh, elsewhere. Today, though, let me read uh, today's passage. Uh, we're ta- ca- talking about the parables of small beginnings. We have two parables today to look at, as you'll see here. And then Jesus quotes the Old Testament to give rationale for why he speaks in parables to fulfill scripture and all that here in Matthew 13, 31 to 35. So let me read it in full to begin. Matthew 13. He put another parable before them, saying, "...the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches." He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. All right, so what I want to do to begin is highlight those last two verses Uh, verses 34 and 35. So you see there's two parables, verses 31 to 33. I'll come back to that in a second. But just recap a bit where we've been here by looking at Matthew 13, 34, and 35. Jesus says, actually Matthew's commentary on this, he's quoting uh, from the Old Testament here. Just saying one of the reasons why Jesus spoke in parables is just to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So the question is, what's being hidden? And what is Jesus continuing to hide here, veil a little bit, only to be revealed later? And the answer is, when the Bible talks about things being veiled and hidden, mysteries to be revealed a little bit later, when the Bible talks in those terms, it always talks about as though it's Jesus himself. He's the hidden thing and his gospel or good news. The fact that God has come to to bring in the kingdom of heaven and the way he's gonna do that is by dying on a cross for our sins. That's a mystery that was partially being, it was being revealed in the Old Testament. The prophets talked about it. Everything in the Bible is ultimately about that. But it was still veiled and a bit foggy. So when the Bible talks about these hidden things, and we just said a moment ago, when Jesus speaks in parables, he's ultimately talking about his kingdom and the ultimate manifestation of that kingdom being himself. So when he does that then, he's talking about himself and the gospel to be revealed. At this vantage point in Matthew, it's still yet to come. So not unlike the climax of a movie, when you're watching a movie or reading a good story, the climax of that movie might be guessed at. Or if you're reading a good book, the climax of that book might be guessed at. You might be able to guess a little bit of what's going to happen here. Sometimes not, but a lot of times you can kind of understand what's going to happen as the story builds and so forth. But it's still veiled. Uh, Not unlike that, the Bible speaks and it lays itself out in veiled ways that God reveals himself in partial ways or foggy ways, but then much more clear ways later, the clearest form of which is, is the cross. So the cross then helps us understand the parables, quite simply, most clearly. Remember that after Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, there's no more parables being spoken in. There's no more parabolic or parable-like teaching. It's very, it's very clear. It's crystal clear. Jesus says, go and tell the ends of the earth that I've died on the cross for their sins, that God has come and he's brought his kingdom with them. And the manifestation of that is the cross. Go and tell the ends of the earth. But here beforehand, uh, we have this fogginess. But reading the cross back into it, we can have that clarity. And I think also, we're going to see this today too. It's a big thing I've I've tried to weave in these last few weeks. Talked about it more specifically a couple of weeks ago. But I think that the cross can also give a lot of clarity to the parables of life as well. In other words, uh, whenever we just think, where is God in this? Or how can there be so much suffering in the world? Or why did the wicked prosper? These are all biblical questions, by the way, too, which I'm actually not going to fully answer today. Probably shouldn't have posed those questions. I'm not going to talk about them. <laughs> but let's just say, you know, those are some parables of life. Why so much suffering? Why, why do the wicked prosper ahead of, you know, seemingly good people and, and all these things? These things are parables. They're, they're confusing, foggy, veiled things. The cross and the empty tomb grant clarity to those questions. They answer them. The Bible, pose, the Bible poses that. The form, it poses in the form of a question in something really unsolvable in an Old Testament-type manner, but the New Testament Grants that clarity. So, we're going to talk a little bit about suffering today, so I will weave in that. I'm going to talk about some, some of the parables of ministry, and you'll, you'll see what that's going to be about here in a little bit. But um, we're going to come at this from a couple of angles today. First of all, just look at these two parables of small beginnings Matthew 13, 31 to 33, and just talk about what it means, first of all, in a big picture, gospel centered sense. And then come back and talk about how these things flow out into our lives. The cross is the beginning, the empty tomb is the beginning. Uh, But these things flow into our reality too because the kingdom of God, the Bible says, is here right now. Jesus inaugurated it 2,000 years ago. And it's here. It's always been working its way into history like this parable says, like a little bit of leaven into flour. And it's being worked through all of it. And until Christ comes again, that's going to be the case. It's going to be continued worked through people's hearts and culture and history, and ultimately to the four corners of the earth as the Bible teaches. People are going to hear about this. This is the kingdom of God. It's happening now. So if that's the case, then we can expect to see some types of small beginnings, but to, to larger, more mature endings in our life as well in different, in different ways. It's exactly what the Bible teaches. So we'll come back to that, come back to that in a second. But let's start off with this question here: the parables of small beginnings. So the big question is, what do these mean? And I want to lump together these two parables. So it's a parable of the mustard seed becomes a big tree. It's a parable of a little bit of leaven or yeast that's worked into a three measures of flour and then a little bit later it gets worked through, we just work through all of it. I think that technically they're the same thing. You could say that the leaven has more to do with substantial qualitative transformation and that the seed has to do more with just sheer growth. Uh, some commentators make a bigger deal out of that than I think we have to. So I'm just going to lump them together and say they're both about small things that become big. Just to simplify that. Small things that become large and more mature, like a seed to a large tree that, that hosts nests of birds and, and all of that. So the first thing is... And um, we ask this question, what, is the par- what do the parables of small beginnings mean? First thing is, they mean the kingdom of God will start small and get big, quite simply. In other words, it will arrive in a not very expected manner. So Jesus uses then the mustard seed. He says the smallest of all seeds for a reason. I have a picture here too of what, that, what a mustard seed looks like. It's actually not technically the smallest seed there are orchid seeds and different types of seeds that are a little bit smaller, but don't be too literal here. Jesus is just teaching in parables. He's saying this is a very, 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 very small thing that isn't it amazing that it becomes huge, 10, ten foot tall mustard bush or tree that uh, we can partake from and, and animals can, can nest in and different things like that. So the bigger trees too. But he's just saying this is a small thing that miraculously becomes uh, very big. And the kingdom of God is like that. It's about the start being small and the end being a, a large, a large element. The main reason he's starting here is that contextually, this is very true for us today as well, we always have misunderstandings about Christ that we bring to the table that need correction, misunderstandings about what he's all about in the world that need course correction. The Bible always helps us here. Jesus always helps us. But contextually for the Jews, this is an even bigger deal. The Jews thought the kingdom of God, or salvation again in a broad sense, would fall out of heaven as the biggest of trees. No mustard seed, no little bit of leaven. It would fall out as completely leavened flour. It would fall out of heaven as just the biggest of trees instantly in a day. That's the, that was their perception. That was their interpretation of the prophets, their expectation of this messianic age. So not beginning small, but really beginning very, very large. In other words, more specifically, many of them expected immediate physical victory militarily over physical enemies, namely the Roman Empire, who had annexed their land prior in history and who were occupying this divinely given homeland that uh, for a long time at that point that they wanted eradication of them from. So they expected then a loud Messiah, a triumphant king. And of course, they should have expected that. The prophets predicted a triumphant king. They predicted as much. But what they missed was two things. The manner by which God's kingdom would come and the timeline of it all. So really important to understand. We're not going to talk too much about uh, the timeline portion today, but just understand for today's purposes that, that the Jews expected the old age to end in a day and the new age to begin. But the, when the Bible talks about this new age, this New Testament era, it talks about it as, as a two-pronged or a two-staged event. Christ would come once to deal with sin. He would come a second time, which we all still wait for, to bring to full completion what he began when he first arrived. That's not what the Jews expected. That was one of those hidden, veiled Hard to understand things from an Old Testament perspective, but with that, when you understand it that way, your timeline expectation for these things really, is, uh, really differs. But that's a different sermon. We're not going to really talk about that much today. What we are going to talk about is the manner by which all this happened. They expected a triumphant Messiah, and they should have, but they misunderstood the manner. They did not see this component to the prophets, to the prophecies of the Old Testament it talked about the quietness and the smallness of God's arrival in the world, at least at the forefront. Mark 11 is a good uh, example of this, which I'll read now. Uh, this is a different account in the New Testament. Mark is another one of the gospel accounts, the four. And uh, the context here is when Jesus will come to this portion of Matthew here soon. Uh, I like Mark's account because it really highlights the anticlimactic nature of all this, even better, I think, than Matthew. But after Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's not there yet in Matthew, and enters the Sibiana cult triumphantly amid shouts of Hosanna! which means Lord save, and others rightly calling him the son of David, which was a kingly messianic term in the Old Testament. As he's doing that, this is what it says in Mark 11. So after the triumphal procession, which we call it, celebrate that on Palm Sunday, recognize it, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12th. So it's anticlimactic drama at its finest right here. This would be like a, a hyped captain or hyped general in the midst of a war, walking into central headquarters where the best of the best resided troop wise. And then kind of looking around a bit and then just going home because he was tired. You know, so it's that, it's that type of, but I thought this was it. That would have been the, the moment where this, if there's any type of disillusionment in the Jews at that point, it would have been heightened to, to, a, to an apex, to a climax at that point. I thought this was it. I thought this was the moment. And what Jesus is saying with his actions is, no, this is not when, where, and how the kingdom begins. This is not it. This is not the when. It's not the how. It's not the where. It's going to be later. So this helps us then get at this mustard seed idea and small leaven nature, small beginnings nature of the kingdom of God, and that there must be an even greater battle because the prophets did predict a battle. It did predict a loud, triumphant Messiah. There must be a greater battle than what's being uh, perceived here. And so here's the thing. We talked a lot about this in Matthew so far because Jesus is interactive with a lot of these people who have had these misunderstandings. He's course correcting. He's saying, I, I am fulfilling scripture, just not in the ways that you've, that you've understood it. Jesus did come to be king then. He did come with a shout of victory. He did come to destroy the enemies of God's people. He did come to ensure an inheritance for all those being saved. And in all those ways fulfill the anticipations and the prophecies of the Old Testament. But the manner by which he did it, the manner by which he did it was suffering even to death on a cross so like i said before if if sin and death are our true enemies and this is key if god was going to bring a kingdom into the world that would benefit us and not destroy us then it had to start small a mustard seed like beginning suffering was necessary if the tree came in and dropped out of heaven as the tree we're all toast because there's no forgiveness of sins there's, there's no suffering of the Messiah. There's no atonement for all of our transgressions and wrongdoings. If it begins like a tree and fully leavened flour, we're toast, we're done, we die. And so God began small because he brought a kingdom that would not just be a kingdom, it would be a glorious kingdom, but it would be one that would come much large later. With all that said, he started like a mustard seed, like a little bit of leaven in a way that would benefit us, actually benefit the people that he loves. He wants to save from the true enemies. Of sin and death. Luke 24, 26 uh, gets at this. This is the words of Christ after his resurrection. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and these these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? It had to happen. The prophets first saw it. The Old Testament was predicting it, anticipating a number of levels. Was it not necessary? And for our benefit, the Christ had to suffer and then and only then enter into his glory. And to pull from the metaphor of Matthew 13, grow into that big tree and spread out its branches. So when Christ is mocked, condemned as a guilty man, flogged, even though he's innocent, flogged and crucified, and when he turns the cheek during all of that, those are mustard seed-like beginnings. When all of his friends desert him, when it's the hour of darkness, Jesus' words, again, this is a small amount of leaven being worked into the flower of the world. When he lies still and dead in a tomb for three days, and when all hope seems to be lost, small, almost unperceivable beginnings. That's what all that is about. That's the mustard seed. That's unclear at that vantage point. It's, par- it's parable-like. It's foggy. But on this side of the cross, you look back and say, well, of course. Christianity's all about small to large. It's all about a seed to a tree. It's not just about the tree. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. So then it begins to grow. It's only after that first mustard seed of the cross that it begins to grow. And grow substantially, you could say, at the resurrection. Moreover, as the gospel spreads and works its way into the dough of people's hearts and the flower of the Roman Empire and beyond, it it, it then spreads its branches, just to mix the metaphors there a bit, spreads its branches and becomes the biggest of kingdoms right up into this day. And in that manner, Christ then begins to establish his rule over, over all creation. Another uh, picture I got of this was this last summer. A lot of you guys live here locally, but uh, this Longfellow storm we had at the end of June, a lot of you guys uh, bore the brunt of that. And Longfellow, I think, was the bullseye of the whole city. It's like, yes, we won, you know? (laughs) But uh, a lot of downed trees, straight-line winds, a lot of damaged homes. And right around my house, our tree kind of leans. We had to get taken down, but fortunately, didn't hit our house. Uh, Bob and Rhonda Hale, I think, had, are they here today? Rhonda's here. Uh, Oh, Bob, there you are. (laughs) You guys, I think, won the jackpot with the biggest tree Probably in the whole city that came down on, on your guys' house. So it was, uh, and they're, they're close to us. Um, but anyway, for a while, you guys noticed that the city came by pretty quick and cut a lot of these trees down, but left the stumps. And so a lot of these stumps were tipped over uh, towards homes. And just a picture, this is one close to my house, just down the block, not bobbing around as I uh, should have taken a picture of you guys. But anyway, uh, this one's a lot smaller, but it's, you know, this poor lady had uh, three trees on her house. It's like, oh man, jackpot. But anyway. The, uh, this was one close to my house, but just a few weeks later, maybe a lot of you guys noticed this, a lot of the stump started to grow back. So just a few weeks later, this is what it looked like. couldn't even see the stump anymore. It's just like this massive, you know, these shoots came out of the stump. And I think that what this, what this demonstrates is small death. I mean, literally, a tree is pretty much dying. Death-like beginnings, but then lots of shoots of life after that. And, and the prophets speak in these terms, too. Back in Isaiah 11.1, 1, It says, this is hundreds of years before Christ, but speaking about him. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is King David's father. And so basically speaking from the line of David, we know Christ came from his line. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So what's going on here in Isaiah is basically God, through Isaiah, is prophesying, teaching about this. He's just saying... He's describing Israel's impending judgment and exile away from God. It's a big context to all when the prophets minister and serve in that portion of history. But he's saying, followed by that, there will be hope. Uh, there, there will be sh- the shoot of Christ will come up out of that stump, out of that judgment, out of that time of exile, there will be hope for, for the Jews and for the world. But I think you can also say here that Christ is, these are both true, Christ is the ultimate stump because he's the ultimate judged one. He's the ultimate Israel who is, who is judged in place of, of the world, place of the people. And so he's the ultimate one who is cut down. And through that cutting of down, he sends out shoots of life. So it's exactly like what he's talking about in the parables. Starting small, starting with almost imperceivable death-like beginnings, but then out of that, sending out shoots of life, shoots of new growth, the biggest of trees. The leaven is completely worked through. It begins very, very small. The, the flower is... It's a very, very small amount of leaven, but it's being worked through and transformed. Uh, It's transforming the world, beginning with sinful people like us. So, point all this. This is the nature of the kingdom of God right here. This is what Jesus is saying. But there's no other definition of the kingdom. There is no just instant tree-like kingdom. This is how God is working in the world. He begins small, and then it gets very large. Unexpected small beginnings, which lead us ultimately to the cross. Who benefits us, who believe. And then only after that, large endings, which lead us to the empty tomb and the church age and ultimately the second coming. So this is the small, unexpected beginning right here. This is the stump that was cut down for us. This is the one who bore our sins. This is the mustard seed. This is the little bit of leaven right here that the Jews missed. And honestly, the world misses in a broad sense until the Holy Spirit comes and illuminates and makes the the Bible not a parable anymore. We can actually, the fog lifts and clears and we can see, oh, that's exactly, that's what the the kingdom's gonna be all about right there. It's not just a tree instantly. It starts like a mustard seed. It starts at the cross. This is where the New Testament begins right here. Jesus makes that clear. It's not until I die. It's not until I suffer. It's not until I shed my blood on a tree and die among criminals for you. That's what inaugurates the kingdom of God. That's what communion's all about. Do this Partake of bread and wine in remembrance of me, my broken body, and shed blood. Because in that is the new covenant, the New, the new Testament, which begins uh, there and, and is given for you as a gift for the forgiveness of your sins. So this is the nature of the kingdom of God right here. This is the big piece. We, this is the most important thing I'm going to talk about today. Uh, however, flowing from this, the second thing we're going to talk about is the ramifications for this in our life. In other words, if this is true, and the kingdom's here now, if the kingdom of God's not, if this is not just about beginnings, but about thorough, kind of like the leaven into the flower idea, working that through into the world, in our lives, in an individual basis, on a communal basis, like in a church community, and just into the world, then we can expect to see small to big reflected in church life and in ministry, and in a broad sense, just in the world. So I'm going to talk about a couple of things. I have three things today. We could talk all day, though, about this. Understand that. And I'll highlight in passing a couple of other things, you know, contrary to what I'm going to say, just for examples here. You'll see that in a minute. Uh, but these are just a couple of things that, uh, that we can look at. So, again, what do the parables of the small beginnings mean? They mean the kingdom will spread into our lives and the world around us in small ways so that we can expect a few things. First, we can expect God to work through the small the mundane, the quiet, hidden things of life to bring about great good. One passage I love about this in the Old Testament is from 1 Kings 19. It's when the prophet Elijah is running from Jezebel who wants his life. And uh, God speaks to Elijah. And in context here in verse 11 and 13, it's amazing how he reveals himself to him. So verse 11, and he said, God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Similar again to the way God speaks to us on the cross. Again, there, when Christ died on the cross for our sins, a lot of you are familiar with this, but God brought a great earthquake when he was dying on the cross for our sins. And a lot of physical phenomena happened there that were quite miraculous. But God didn't ultimately speak to us in the earthquake. He ultimately spoke to us in the final breath of Christ when he says, it is finished. That's when God speaks to you and to me and to the world. He's not in the loud earthquake. He's not, he wasn't in that. What he was in was his pronouncement on the cross that I've accomplished what I set out to do. It's finished. My mission's done. I've died for the sins of the world. I've glorified God the Father. I've accomplished it. The new age is here. That's where God fully meets with us. So not in the loud miracle, in the whisper of it is finished. And it's similar then to the rest of our life as well. God's just not in the big things. He says, you can even say, I think, especially in the small, unexpected things, the low whispers and small things of life. James 1, 2 to 3 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So as we look at this, uh, as Christians especially, only Christianity can really say this, I think, and mean it, because of the cross, Because the center of our belief system is a God who went from the trial, the great trial of Christ, to immense goodness. And so we say then, underneath the umbrella of that, if God did that, then he will use my lesser sufferings to bring about great good. He he is the God who all the time does that, all the time. So if that's the case, then, then of course I should count it joy when we meet trials of various kinds because I know that somehow through this testing will come steadfastness. So James even has the audacity to say, count it joyful. (laughs) Not just like, see, it's kind of a good thing in the long run, but actually be a joyful joyful individual when you suffer trials of many kinds. I mentioned last week that, I think it was two weeks ago or last week, but it's rare that our lives are changed for the better after a season of comfort. Right? If you're honest with yourself, it's totally true in my life. I'm never changed for the better after seasons of comfort. It's always through seasons of pain. I look back on that and I see after that, God used that to bring about great good and and it fits perfectly, again, for the Christian's worldview because, again, at the center of our worldview is, is the center of God's kingdom, which is the cross, an empty tomb. It's crossed, empty tomb, mustard seed to tree. So at the center of this worldview, we're, just, we're viewing the world this way, including our own lives, and we're saying, well, of course, God is going to use even evil and darkness and, and seasons of trial and pain to bring about great good. It's still going to be murky, and it's not not to diminish all of that by any means. It's just to say God meets us in that that brings about great good. To say he doesn't is to say that the cross didn't bring about great good. We have to acknowledge that. This is, to be a Christian is to acknowledge that. So say that God works in this way is, is as James says, not just joyful, it's, it's very, very reassuring. So here's one thing I want to encourage you guys with, whether it's suffering or something else, because uh, a lot of us operate just in the mundane and a daily basis. I think when Jesus holds up a mustard seed, or at least figuratively, when he's talking about the smallest of things, as he says... He's not only the creator of that, but he's giving meaning to it. And so the Christian God then gives meaning to the smallest of things. It's one thing we learn, I think, in this parable, in this greater teaching. It's one thing we learn at the cross. The God of the Bible gives meaning to the mundane, to the simple, to even the seemingly boring. He gives meaning to it. A lot of times he's just in that. Like he was not in the loud, miraculous earthquake or fire or wind for Elijah, but just the whisper, the simple whisper. It's just going to be true in our life as well especially because of the cross and what we see there. So take some encouragement in that. A lot of you guys are just going day to day, and you're thinking, my life is not very exciting. Uh, really, from a Christian worldview, everything matters. Everything does. Everything's meaningful. He's in the small, he, this is the way God reveals himself. In whispers, and the ultimate whisper is the cross. In seeds, and the ultimate seed is the cross. In a little bit of leaven, and the ultimate leaven is the cross. And you can expect that to flow into your life as well. So meet God in those moments. And nothing you do is unimportant. Uh, it, it, all, it all matters in his eyes. On a ministry level, one more thing on this. Uh, Acts 3 and Acts 16, I don't have the passages on screen. I thought of this last minute, so I just threw it in here. But in Acts, the book that is right after the fourth gospel account, so it tells the, the uh, history, the theological history of the early church and what happened there after Christ ascended, sent his spirit-powered church to preach and to minister and spread the gospel around the known world at that time. In Acts 3 and 16 are a couple demonstrations of how God works loudly, miraculously, but people are not saved in that. They're saved in the quiet, even private, whisper of the gospel or the simplicity and clarity of the preached gospel. So in Acts 3, Peter and John heal a cripple. Miraculously, a crowd is drawn, and Peter preaches to thousands, and thousands are saved from their sins. Not one more is healed physically, but thousands are spiritually. In Acts 16, uh, Paul and Silas are imprisoned, for preaching the gospel. God decides to free them. They're praying. God decides to free them angelically and miraculously. There's a huge earthquake. The gates are open and they run out and the jailer is so scared he wants to take his life and he's seeking to do that. Paul says, don't do it and then the first question this guy has is, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And it says right after that they took him privately to a house and then it just says, passingly, almost passingly, kind of whisperingly, they explain the word of the Lord to them. And he understood. And the Lord opened their minds to what was being said, and they were saved. I love the drama of that. It's not like it's something that the author of Acts, Luke, puts his finger on necessarily and says, note this, but we're supposed to see that, I think, in the subtext. They're not saved by the earthquake. They're not saved by the, the angelic help. They're not saved by seeing a physical miracle. Those things can demonstrate God's power, but it was in the whisper of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, privately or publicly, that they were saved. This is a mustard seed-like experience. And we can expect this in our own lives and as you bring the gospel to, to more people as well. I expect that. And that leads me to the second thing. That's the first thing. Expect God to work that way. The second more precise thing is expect God to use very normal people to spread the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29 says, For consider your calling, brothers. This is Paul the Apostle speaking to a New Testament church in Corinth. So Paul is saying here, and one of the contextual issues with the church in Corinth is that they're very, very, very arrogant, and they're competing with other Christians. Paul speaks into that to, again, course correct them with the gospel, just to say, look around. Paul's basically saying, just look around, church. Uh, Have you ever wondered why it is that the church is not full of quantum physicists or very, very rich people? There there are some of that. God saves the elite. God saves the very intelligent. God saves the very... There's some of that. But for the most part, Paul's saying here, look around. You are primarily very blue-collar. Very, very average. Very normal. Have you ever wondered why that is? And he gives the answer here. It's that way because God chooses the average primarily to demonstrate that it's by God's grace that we're saved, not by our awesomeness. Not by our intelligence. Not by whatever we did to get rich. That's not how people are saved. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by God coming to full measure of length to us, to save us. It's all about grace. That This is demonstration. Look around. It's a demonstration of grace that that's the case. If it was by our intelligence that we were saved, then the church would be full of the smartest, logically, right? It would be full of all we, always that would be the case. If it was by our intelligence in figuring out God and how to get to him, it would be the smartest of the smart. But that's not the case. And because it's not, we know then, Paul says, God chooses us by grace. There's a, wide, there's a wide variety of types of people from all backgrounds, all different levels of intelligence and with different levels of money and, and privilege and all of that. And the way we know the gospel is a gospel of grace and a gospel of choosing because that's the case. If it wasn't, we would not have that type of diversity. That's what Paul is saying here. On a ministry level, uh, we say a lot around here, you know, God uses very, very average sermons uh, to encourage people very, very average. And that's good. I mean, when I'm encouraging church planners or pastors just as they're developing as preachers, and I've done this, i you know, it's not about being a rock star here. Don't try to be a rock star. It's not about you. Just preach. Love Christ. Love the church. Love the Bible. And people will love it too. And, you know, if you're genuinely preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, he will use that because he's in the whispers. He's in the lesser sermons. He's in the weaker ones. And he loves doing that to demonstrate it's by grace we're saved. Not by our amazingness. There's a lot of great preachers out there, for sure, and praise God for them. A lot of great gifted public speaker type preachers, and God uses them as well, for sure. But in general, I think applying this to, uh, you know, teaching level, evangelism level, preaching level, uh, it's not about people. It's about God using broken vessels. God's clear in that. So to widen this out a bit, not just for teachers, preachers, but to talk about all of us as very ordinary messengers, he uses us to bring good news to a lost world. So expect him, if, if the mustard seed to tree thing is true, if the cross to empty tomb and ultimately second coming progression of biblical history is true, one of the ways this is going to flow into our experience is God is going to use the very average among us to win people to the Lord, to save them from their sins with our message, and it's, it's not going to be the flashiest. So all these things we just talked about should not be surprises for Christians, again, because the center of our reality is a God who establishes a very real kingdom in small ways by grace. But what can happen sometimes is we can functionally live, even though it's maybe rare—you could say I don't know if that's the best word for it—but let's just say maybe rare—that a Christian would, when they have all the theology laid out before them, agree that it's the tree first, not the seed. Granted, but what can happen a lot of times is we can functionally live as though it is just the tree and not the mustard seed first. It's—it's it's about a crossless. Christianity, and when we do that, we end up being shocked, for example, when a younger Christian in the faith is used more than we are, an older Christian by God, or suffering is more perplexing than normative. That's what happens when we, when we don't approach the world and approach the Bible, approach the greater understanding of the reality of the kingdom of God from seed to tree. Suffering is more of a perplexing thing, always going to be perplexing for sure, But from a Christian worldview, it's actually more normative. That's why people like James actually just acknowledge that and say, Jesus, you will suffer because I did. And James says, count it joy. It's less normative for us when we don't have this seed to tree or a little bit of leaven to full leaven idea of the kingdom. Or we don't evangelize because we think ourselves ill-equipped. Or we think God only moves in the loud ways, and so we seek to be very loud as Christians, as well, and influential in whatever that means. You know, it could mean a ton of things or you know, it could mean very little things, but we're, we seek to be very loud in terms of our influence, but we forget that God actually uses the quiet and the unassuming and the mundane uh, as well, sometimes even more than the than loud to influence the world. Ultimately, what's happening is we forget. We forget grace, we become arrogant and selfish. Love for enemies is impossible. It's not even possible, like Jesus teaches that. It's not possible. From a graceless Christianity or a crossless Christianity, because Jesus for us then is just someone to help us condemn other people with and to join our cause, not a Savior who saved us by grace. We could go on and on and on, but those are some examples of living functionally as though the kingdom is about the tree first without a seed rather than seed to tree. Final, just to make sure this is clear, uh, we can expect this as well. If these parables aren't true and this, this type of kingdom is a reality, We can expect it to be by simple faith and rest that we enter this kingdom, not by strength or good deeds or self-righteousness. Two verses quick on this, Zechariah from the Old Testament, then he said to me, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, picking up on that spirit idea in the New Testament in Titus 3, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified or made right before him by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's what I'll I'll leave us with. This is what I think Jesus is presenting. He's ultimately presenting himself. This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is reality as we know it. So, like last week, we talked about this too. Do you believe that? There's a huge degree of invisibleness to this, but the Bible calls us to faith in it. Do you believe this best characterizes the Bible, Christianity with it, and our whole worldview and reality with it, even on top of that? Is this your understanding of the way the Bible progresses? This is the only one the Bible knows. There is no instant tree one that drops out of heaven. And like I said before, praise God that's not the case. Praise God the tree just didn't drop out or the fully leavened flower didn't drop out of heaven because if it did, there's no no seed, there's no little bit of leaven, there's no tree stump. There's no suffering for sins. And if that's the case, God is just arriving to destroy the world, which he is ultimately going to do in the end. So yes, there is a loud, victorious, tree-coming-out-of-heaven type arrival of God. But he's patiently waiting for people to embrace the seed, the cross and the empty tomb. He's patiently, he's coming in gently. He speaks lovingly and softly and gently to us. He doesn't crush us, the Bible teaches elsewhere, but he's gentle. He forgives all of our sins. As far as the east is from the west, he removes sin from us, the Bible teaches. That's a mustard seed type reality. This is how he's moved into the world. He's slow to anger. Praise God. So we need to stop, I think, right here at this point and just praise God that there is a mustard seed at all. We need to praise God that he has moved towards us in this compelling, wonderful, yet quiet manner to begin. In a whisper of the gospel, he has done it. So glory to God for that. So that's the first thing, is rejoice. Secondly, use this worldview and this paradigm to help you understand your life a bit better, to grant a little bit more clarity to the parables of life and to other parable-like teachings, even though maybe they're not parables, but parable-like teachings in the Bible that talk about suffering going to goodness, that talk about humility leading to exaltation, that talk about weakness going to strength, that talk about the least becoming the greatest, all of that, and quietness being a valued and loudness too in its own time, but quietness being a very valued Christian uh, ethic and, and way of living for all the reasons talked about before. If you don't have the cross in mind, those are very, very confusing passages. They don't make any sense, really. But with the cross, they make perfect sense. But that's the way life in this world will work because it's God's ultimate reality. And God's ultimate reality is the only reality that exists. So use this paradigm. First, rejoice. God loves you. He saved you. Then secondly, use this uh, paradigm to understand the world and your life and just what's happening in your life. Uh, the quietness and the simple things, the mundane, how God speaks in that, all the stuff we talked about today, and many, many more. I was hoping that that 's going actually be things I don't talk about that God prompts you with as I was speaking, because there's so many things that this can really apply to today uh, as we uh, just think about life and ministry and inside and outside of the church. So well, let me pray for us here, and we'll close up. God, thank you for today, for your grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Matthew 13, 31 to 35. Uh, thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for bringing yourself into the world to be the ultimate manifestation of the cut-down stump that sends out shoots. The seed that becomes the biggest of trees. Uh, the little bit of leaven that's worked through the flower uh, later. But thank you that you are all those things. You are the ultimate, one of, the ultimate version of all those things. So that Titus 3 is true. You came into the world to justify us. That it's not by our works of righteousness and our religiosity. It's not by us. But it's by your power, Your spirit. As Zechariah 4, 6 says, it's not by strength, not by might of us, of ours. It's by you and your spirit working in the world to save lost sinners like us. Thank you that that's just true and we get a a wonderful poetic depiction of that in Matthew 13 to again remind us of what you are all about. What is salvation all about? What is Jesus all about? What happened on the cross? We get clarity in that when you actually fulfill it and accomplish it and you lift the fog of the parables when you do it too. So thank you for all of that. Bless us as we respond in communion and worship today and pray it all in Christ's name, amen. All right, everyone.